The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast and I'm Jessica Townsend and today I'm flying solo because, well, to be honest, we've rushed this podcast out, but we've got a good reason because the launch day, Saturday 12th of October, is the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement and it was today, five years ago, that the world governments got together and decided to commit to trying to make sure that the world did not heat any further than one and a half degrees. Yet, today, five years later, we're still on course for three or four degrees of warming. This spells out much more than climate fragility, weather anomalies and the loss of cities to rising sea levels. It also means that many areas in the global south will lose water supplies, with that the ability to grow crops and even the ability to sustain human life for much of the year. Some people are framing a new approach to countering the inaction of global governments to this dire situation. And that is to say that they are failing us all in our basic human rights, and in particular, in the right to life. And so today, three British youth have decided to launch a court case against the UK government for the failures to meet its own commitments and to guarantee their basic human rights. First, we hear from one of the plaintiffs, Jerry Amaquando, a student and a campaigner. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. So on Saturday, it will be the fifth anniversary of the Paris Climate Agreement. And I, with three co-claimants within the legal case, but many young people, are bringing our faces and our names and our witnessing to the legal courts in order to point out one of the most serious violations of human rights that we're starting to see as a generation. We had five years ago this agreement that seemed to imply some sort of compliance with international law and domestic law that acknowledged the importance of addressing climate change, which they themselves admit is one of the most significant threats to human rights that has ever been seen. And they've also acknowledged its importance not only for human rights, but the rights to health, the rights of indigenous people, local communities, migrants, children, persons with disabilities, and people in vulnerable situations. As well as itself, the Paris Agreement mentioning the empowerment of women and intergenerational equity. Now, all of these for us are definitions of the global majority, the vast majority of people in this world who are suffering as a result of the, the corruption and inaction of a very tiny minority. Young people all around the globe have now been pointing out that democracy is participatory. In Chile, in Nigeria, young people have been at the forefront of resisting these colonial logics which are destroying our society. So here in the UK, my role, what I feel like as a young person, is to show solidarity by bringing the same action to point out that our government is very much complicit and actually, in fact, a global leader in the harm and violence that has been killing 
significantly and disproportionately my people. I say that as an African heritage youth, I'm from Ghana. And so for me as a British citizen, I'm led to believe that the UK government is meant to safeguard my rights. Now, two of those rights which I'm concerned with, as, as I start to learn about more of them, is Article 2, my right to private life, Article 8, my right to family life, and Article 14, which is the right for any individual to not be discriminated against on any grounds. A lot of what you just talked about is sort of globally focused, but you're suing the British government. So would you mind explaining how you see that? Well, it's important to understand that the UK is a global institution. Its financial institutions are global institutions. And again, my point being that I, as a young person who is British, but I'm a British Ghanaian, my rights to private life include my own communities, the survival of my own communities for our future here in the UK. But my rights to my family life are extensively in Ghana, in West Africa, in Nigeria, who are seeing the forefront harm of this global climate catastrophe. I'm led to believe that the UK government is supposed to be safeguarding their rights too. Now, that is what we are failing to witness at all in any direction. And that harm and that violence is going to be tantamount to genocide. And we know that. And we in our African heritage communities have long been calling this out as the Ma'angamizi, which is the African Holocaust and destruction of our people. So the UK's inaction now is a failure to safeguard my rights. But most importantly, what I'm witnessing is how that means that my family globally will be on the front line of that sacrifice. And in particular, Jerry, what are you worried about for your family? Well, I mean, a lot of these harsh realities aren't things, these aren't concerns of the future. A small example is the billions that have been given to a company called Schlumberger, who are operating in Ghana in oil fields, who have been responsible for deaths and the failure to secure the rights of their workers. Now, I have family who work for this company. At the very same time, I've got family who live on the coast in Ghana. And this year in Takaradi, they've experienced more floods than they ever have in a singular year. So when we're talking about water scarcity, food shortages, and the damage to people's harms and livelihoods, my witnessing my family already have to deal with the harsh, harsh realities of something that is largely funded here in the UK. And until we speak up about it, we as young people, global family or not, are forced to be complicit in this violence, which we are now seeing on a mass level, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah, and at the moment, we're only at one... 1.1 degree warming, aren't we? And we're heading for something much higher. So you must be very fearful for them. Yeah, and we have to understand that 1.1 degrees here means very different things um, in terms of climate disruption and random climate activities which are happening, which we've seen in California, say, but we've been seeing in the floods or the hurricanes in the Caribbean. So a lot of these things are like harsh realities that 1.1 degrees becomes this abstract number instead of the very real violations of, again, of human rights. What's important for me about this case is that we're framing the climate emergency as something that's not abstract and about some science and some numbers, but about a very real human impact, which I feel, which I know my, my generation are feeling, and which my family in Ghana and in West Africa have been resisting and been exposed to for centuries. And why do you think it's important that it's young people taking the government to court? Well, I think for us as young people, we need to step up to the reality that we're, we're being faced with. Our generation is on the front line of a catastrophe far more significant than anything we, have, we could possibly have conceived of. And for even other generations who we are in close contact with, who can, can begin to you know, conceive of the harm of, of like global catastrophe. We're talking about a reality in which 
by the end of this century, I've read estimates of five billion people will be displaced. A billion people will be starving by, by 2050. Mass displacement, mass food shortages and water scarcity. And if we feel like we're going to be the lucky minority, then we have to switch on because we can't trust that reality to be the case. When we are already seeing people here in the UK who have long been talking about, and they too are the global majority, who long have been talking, talking up for the damages of fracking or mining to their health or their lands. They too have witnessed their rights long violated and ignored. So if we think the UK government hasn't been listening to them, what do we think they're going to do to us? And I think us as young people now, it's, we have a once in a lifetime opportunity again by the government's own admission to invest in repairing our communities, repairing our education in line with the futures that we all want. Because the future, I think personally, that laws that don't secure us global justice, they are not our laws. And we have a chance now to exercise our common appreciation for humanity, our love of each other, into the laws that safeguard our rights and secure us the future of repairs and planetary justice. What do you hope will be the result of the court case? The court case for me is very much the start of a long process of securing the frameworks and infrastructure for repairs that are needed for a total transformation of our society. I mean, for me, this is the start of something that is going to have to be, will be slow. It'll be start of the process of decolonizing our society, of democratizing our society, encouraging participation in democracy, otherwise it's not democratic, and to start to normalize the things that are going to secure us global justice. For me, it's also going to be the start of a turning point where internationalism is normalized within domestic law, where the UK understands that it is forcibly and necessarily, I mean, the UK is famous and is notorious at ignoring international obligations. But the start of this turning point needs to be that we see that we as a global society, as a multicultural community, have duties to each other, which extend far beyond these colonial logics of borders placed around lands, which we now no longer see when we've got family all around the world. I think this is the start of total global transformation. And if it's not, then there's no point us doing it. We're here as part of a much bigger process to work towards consolidating the frameworks of a global majority who can build the laws and societies in their own futures, in their own, in our own image, as young people, as, as marginalised ethnic minorities, as marginalised identities, and to visualise that. What would you say to people who say, what about Putin? What about China? What are, you know, um, that those people aren't going to fall in, and until recently Trump, aren't going to fall in with an international, uh, a vision of an international future. How would you address them? Um, to those people, I speak very, very, very frankly. And this is, for me, one of the very clever colonial education forms of universalism that encourages us to think that we, as British people, have some sort of exception to the rule. If we want to talk and point out the criminalities of other countries, then it's about time that we show our own leadership, acknowledge that we are complicit in a disproportionate amount of the violence and harm globally, and what was the facts that I found out the other day? 15% of global emissions pass through the city of London. And we're, having the, we're wasting time pointing elsewhere to the damage that is being done by other countries. This tiny island has been responsible for the most extreme, extreme parts of violence in collaboration with these other superpowers that you've named. And what that has always been to the detriment and invisibilization of are the global majority. We, the people who stand in the shadow of these powerful institutions that are making these decisions without our participation. 
So, I mean, if we don't mobilize our own collective leadership, then pointing at other countries does nothing because it makes us still complicit in the same violence. And that violence is now genocide. It's nothing less than the mass massacre and complete destruction of our people, which is, again, the most significant thing we should be, ever be talking about. Thank you very much, Jerry. Just to remind listeners, that was Jerry Amaquando, who is a student and campaigner and one of the three young people suing the British government. I'm now joined by Tim Crossland, the lawyer representing Plan B. He'll be working with the three young people to bring the case. Tim, what laws are the government breaking as far as you're concerned? So I think it's quite interesting just to go back to the Declaration of Climate and Environmental Emergency made by Parliament on the 1st of May 2019. Because a lot of people quite rightly said, well, does this mean anything apart from words? I mean, what what does it count for? Is it just a symbol? But there is a legal consequence to acknowledging the threats that we face. Because whether you think about it as part of the social contract that fundamental relationship between those within a territory and those that govern. The heart of that is that governments protect their people from threats too complex for individuals to deal with on their own. And the way that that principle, that fundamental principle of the social contract, gets translated into law is through the law of human rights, the right to life the right to family life. And the jurisprudence on those rights makes it absolutely clear that is not simply about a government not directly interfering with the right to life. It also creates the obligation on governments to take reasonable and necessary measures to safeguard those within its jurisdiction from the threats that it knows about. So it's quite clear that the government understands the threat. We get lots of rhetoric, we get lots of acknowledgement that this is the most serious threat that humanity faces and that imposes on the government a legal obligation to do what is necessary to, to meet that threat. And they're not doing that. And can we just go through a little bit of what the protocol is? You can't just sort of set a court date. So what, what has been done so far and what, what steps will you then take in order to pursue the case? So the first practical step in litigation is something called a letter before action. And you write formally to the government. In this case, we're writing to both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak because it's the Prime Minister and it's the Chancellor who can secure the sort of whole of government response that is needed here. And you set out your case and you give the government an opportunity to respond. So in theory, what could happen is Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak write back and they say, we agree with you, we're we're failing in our duties, and we will introduce an emergency plan to deal with the reduction of our emissions in line with the Paris Agreement, to make sure we're prepared for the impacts that we know we're going to be facing, to align finance flows to the Paris Agreement temperature limit that we've committed to. We will do those things, except we know that that's not what they're going to do. This is why it's it's you know more or less inevitable. We will get some obfuscating response from the government. They will have to respond, and then the next step will be to file our case with the court. But if you listen to the government rhetoric, they've come up with this brilliant 10-point plan. So why doesn't that address what you're talking about? 
Oh, well, absolutely. Boris Johnson's 10-point plan, yes. And, um, uh, of course, a lot of people just don't have time to scrutinise the detail of something like that. And it's reported on the BBC News with very little interrogation. And um, this is a wonderful propaganda tool used by dishonest governments everywhere. Just say what people want to hear. And um, they, lots of the time, don't have time to look beneath that to the reality of what's happening. The reality of that plan is it's at most £4 billion Compared to, let's say, £27 billion for expanding the road network, £100 billion for HS2. The very next day, £16.5 billion announced for increased military spending. And worst of all, this cynical government's plans to cut financial support to the most vulnerable communities right at this moment of global crisis. And as soon as you get that those numbers in context, you see this is nothing other than a distraction. Nobody can seriously believe that that four billion is a plan to transform our economy in the way that we all know is urgently necessary. Some of the figures that I've seen as well point to four billion bailout to um, fossil fuel companies as well post COVID. So we had this Paris Agreement where we would try to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees, it's clear that we haven't yet addressed that. What the government might say is that the state is like a liner and that in order to kind of change course, uh, it's going to look very slow at the beginning and then policy will pick up. Why don't you trust that? So there's a phrase we all got very familiar with during COVID um, around flattening the curve. And we've seen this sort of principle of exponential growth. It's a sort of principle of nature through COVID. The longer you delay, the harder it becomes to change course. That's absolutely true in relation to the climate crisis. We know what drives warming is cumulative emissions over time. So the longer you wait the faster you have to come down. You don't buy yourself time by delaying. You do the opposite. And back in 2015, all governments of the world signed up a declaration that said this is urgent. The gap between our rhetoric and our actions, it is urgent that we bridge it now. And we've continued to see the same pattern we've seen ever since the outset of the UN process back in 1992. For all the words, for all the recognition, the one thing that really matters, emissions has continued to rise. There's no evidence, unfortunately, to believe that um, governments are going to act on their, their commitments at this stage. Now, looking at some articles around this, it seems like actually... If people in Britain take out legal action, people in the US and people in other parts of the world, what the courts might decide are different ways forward in different countries. So it won't make sense in an international way. So what are you trying to do to kind of address that. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think it's an important question, particularly as we do have this tidal wave of, of climate litigation around the world in, in both the global north and the global south, cases in Uganda, in Bolivia and elsewhere. First thing is, I don't believe we're going to do this through the courts on their own. 
I don't think that's realistic. Governments consist of three different pillars. The judiciary is one of them. The judiciary is the third pillar of government. We need a transformation of our societies, and that isn't going to come through some some judges sitting up there on their own. We have to understand that the court process here is part of a a wider mobilisation of society. What we can do through the legal process is shine a spotlight on our government's dishonesty and its hypocrisy and its false claims to global leadership. And by drawing attention to that spark and bring people together in solidarity, that is the, the real outcome I believe we're striving for. But there's something else in your question, which is about potentially the different judgments that courts come to. At the heart of this has to be equity. At the heart of any form of leadership is confronting one's own complicity in whatever the situation is. And in this case, it is the ultimate situation. It is the ultimate threat to humanity. Equity means confronting the past as well as the future. It means confronting all aspects of the problem, not pretending we're a leader because we've set some target for net zero emissions in this country that actually reflects that we're a service economy, that we import so much of our consumption. Um, It means reckoning with our role uh, as the lead global financier for the, the fossil fuel economy. And once we start to look at that past... And to recognise we can't move forward without that, then we can use historic emissions as the basis for flows of of finance that start this process of repair, that put right the harm that has been done. And if that's done in an intelligent way, where we take the carbon budget and we look at who's contributed for what, and we work out in proportion to that harm, what people owe and to whom, we have a simple, credible framework that can bring people together. And this isn't simply about morality, though of course it is a deeply moral question. It's also that when we think about the younger generation who are in the front line now, every bit as much as the global south, this is about our common interest as human beings, as parents, as grandparents. Unless we do this, unless we find a common framework to work together, then ultimately, you know, even for those who are traveling first class, they're still on the Titanic. And it's only by building this common framework rooted in equity that equity can bring us to, to collective survival. So that is that that is what our objective is, collective survival through equity. Thanks very much to Tim Crossland. I'm now going to turn to Esther Stanford-Cose. Esther works with the Stop the Mangamizi campaign. Esther, perhaps you could start by explaining what the campaign is and how it links to this Plan B action. Sure. As our campaign name sort of uh, identifies, we are the Stop the Maangamizi We Charge Genocide Ecocide campaign. And as a campaign, we're an African-led reparatory justice campaign, which is also about seeking to ensure that we can end the harm, which we refer to as genocide, and also ecocide, and these are not singular things. Many different kind of harms occur under those two labels, but end that harm and actually be part of the repair. 
And for us, we see this as a case that has a reparations lens because by the very intervention of these three young people who are part of communities, they are seeking to forge accountability on the part of the British government in terms of its obligations, not only to us as British citizens, so-called, but also its international obligations to the rest of the members of the human family. So as a reparations campaigning formation, we are very concerned with the intensifying genocide and ecocide that are disproportionately impacting communities of resistance in the global south now. This isn't an imminent threat or a future harm that is to be averted. Lives are being taken, stolen now. And this amounts to genocide and ecocide in international law. And so we have an interest in supporting a case such as this because of the novel arguments and approaches, legal approaches that are being taken. And from our perspective, we see ourselves as bringing to this case what's known as Laura's resistance and extra legal praxis, which is really recognising, as Tim has already alluded to, that victory is not just one in narrow kind of court processes. The victory is about how we're able to use this case to catalyse mobilisations in communities who in various ways can also hold others to account that are denying them their rights to life, their individual human rights to life, but also their group rights. And also, you know, perpetrating violations such as genocide and ecocide. And we feel that this is an important approach and strategy. But we know that what is going to really bolster this case is the recognition of it, the importance of it, and that being known and shared across communities in the global south, who actually have a stake in this case and its outcomes because of the courageous actions of these three young people who are standing up and making these arguments that you are impacting not just us. This is about our families and our communities that are actually international. Now, Esther, what do you hope will be the result of this? Well, I guess for us in in the Stop the Ma'angamizi campaign, we hope and, and we are part of helping to ensure that that information about the case gets into our communities, that they recognise it's what's going on, that it can be stimulating those discussions at the local level, at the national level, and of course, at the international and the global level. And we can also ensure that the rhetoric that we're seeing coming from the British government is actually resisted and rejected through rebellion, to be quite honest with you, it's about stimulating and catalyzing rebellion in its various ways and guises in the global south, which is the only way we feel that this rebellion that has been initiated in Europe can actually succeed. And we recognize that that is going to happen at the realm of the masses, the people 
who have a stake, as I said, because the rhetoric of the British government, whereby they're talking about, you know, various plans and what have you, but they're not actually telling the citizens the truth about what the impacts of some of these plans will be and actually are for those in the global south. So we could say that the British government is culpable and in many instances complicit in actually funding so-called development projects, which are really maldevelopment projects, which are actually fueling an intensification of warming, heating, global warming, to actually four degrees of projection. Now, that is something that we can avert now. We have a duty to stop now. And that's why our campaign is Stop the Maangamizi, uh, which we recognise is not just harm to African people, but it's actually the harm to all other members of the human family that have been impacted uh, by this colonisation, by this dispossession. And in particular, the connections that there are between the various histories and histories of colonisation of all the indigenous peoples of the planet. Is the UK action in the forefront or are there parallel actions that uh, Stop the Mangamizi and the Pan-African uh, movement are part of? This one is in the forefront because we have been part of the team working with Plan B, working with uh, the young people who have put themselves forward as co-claimants, where we have been discussing the different approaches and the different roles that we actually play in actually supporting this case. So we are, as been uh, said, an official supporter with Plan B, really supporting the young people, ensuring that they've got the, the, the support into their communities and helping them not only to amplify their individual voices, but ensuring that the voices of the communities that they are part of, which are global uh, communities across time and space, geopolitically, are also amplified in terms of the ongoing harm that is happening now. And that harm is genocide and ecocide. Esther Stanford Cose, thank you so much for joining us today. And for those of you who want to get involved with this campaign, let's get Jerry back just to tell us how that's possible. Of course, of course. The social media platforms which are arriving with our visible campaigns, also look out for billboards, etc., are at Young People Versus. And the action itself is the Global Majority versus UK Gov. And there's also the Plan B website. It's also important to look at it the information and the campaigns on the website of Stop the Mangamizi. And we'll be mounting a case that involves young people, but also mounting an action campaign to lay their own witness statements and contribute their own witness statements to the UK government under the form of the hashtag I am a witness. Because we all need to understand that it's only solidarity, a solidarity between our communities, but also solidarity globally, which is going to succeed in any form of global emancipation. And that means we have to really be articulating the things that are very directly personal to us, the suffering and the harm that we've experienced, and acknowledging that they all come under the same umbrella, this genocidal, ecocidal trajectory, which the UK government knows that we're on. So we're mounting a campaign to really engage young people across universities, outside of universities, um, in our community groups, to be having these conversations, to be bearing witness to the realities around us. And through doing so, what we get to do is consolidate the networks that we do have 
and build the infrastructure that is going to sustain the cause for global justice that so easily get lost under, you know, the attacks and misinformation and miseducation of both our educational institutions, but also our media and all of these ways in which the real realities of destruction are being invisibilized today. And that's what we're trying to build out of this, some sort of sustainable transformative machine of global justice. And Tim, I believe people can also get involved with the crowdfunding of this case. That's right. And um, we've got our crowdfunder going live at eight o'clock GMT, Saturday morning. And we will be advertising that widely across XR. So I'm sure people are going to find the link. Thank you for listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Jessica Townsend. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Just before Christmas, we're going to be launching the 12 podcasts of Christmas where we get people across the movement and maybe, who knows, a couple of celebrities to recommend episodes that they think you should listen to from the back catalogue because we at the podcast team will be taking a break. Uh, I hope you will be too and we'll see you all in the new year. Next year with the COP taking place in Glasgow is going to be a massive one for Extinction Rebellion. So rest up and see you on the other side. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Extinction Rebellion.